Hey folks, Patrick Gale here. Welcome to another episode of the Makers and Shakers podcast. We're on iTunes, so feel free to follow us there. Tonight we bring you the final two speakers from the Makers and Shakers Summit held at Ampersand Studios in Summersworth, New Hampshire. This one was a little bit difficult to work with and it shows a little in the recording, but I think you'll still enjoy it. Make sure you stay tuned to the end to hear what's up next for the Makers and Shakers podcast and for a few words from the one who started it all, Emmett Soldani. Until then, here's your host, Serena Galishaw. Um, I am co-chair of the Envision Berwick Committee across the bridge in Berwick, Maine. And for the last two years, nearly three now, I've been working on a community revitalization strategy to get people excited about downtown Berwick, specifically the leather tannery that's been shut down since 2008. Um, You might know it as prime tanning or that big ugly building in the center of downtown. It's nearly 12 acres, and like I said, it's been vacant since 2008. And so I'm really excited uh, to tell you that um, after sending in our grant application to the federal brownfield program, um, we just last week heard that we received a $600,000 brownfield grant to get started. Yeah, Yeah, thank you. So we're really excited about that. This $600,000 will be used to help clean up and start doing the environmental remediation for three of the lots on the property. So there's still four more. Um, So this is going to be a long process, but it's the beginning of hopefully a really awesome community building project. So thanks for your support in that in the future. Yeah, Yeah, thank you. (laughs) So I'm here to introduce our last two speakers of the night. First up is Brooke Steinhauser. She is the South Berwick site manager for Historic New England, which includes the Hamilton House and the Sarah Orne Jewett House. Some of you may have been there in South Berwick. She's also an incredible tap dancer. So without further ado, here's Brooke. The part about tap dancing is an utter fabrication that I fed Serena. Thank you, Serena. No. Um, Hi, everybody. I'm really glad to be here. And uh, yeah, I am. I'm a museum enthusiast. I enjoy old junk, great characters, and quirky histories. Um, But what I love most is the work that I do in museums, uh, which I believe that that work with a bit of thoughtful enthusiasm can bring communities together over a shared story. So. I recently realized that I've been working in museums for 11 years, which blew my mind. I decided as a kid that for me this is what I I loved, it's the past, and I started thinking about art and history, and I found myself interning at museums in high school, and working in them in college, and ultimately earning a master's degree in history museum studies. Um, The institutions I worked at have ranged from art museums to living history sites to historic houses. And they also range geographically from a site on Alaska's only Indian reservation to a site in the Dutch West Indies, and that's by way of the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery, a castle in Florence, Italy, um, and a certain reclusive poet's home in Western Massachusetts. So I've had a lot of time to see museums at their best and also to see them at their not best. And frankly, it's an uphill battle for museums, and I see it as my job as a museum enthusiast to dust off the conventions put in place by men and women of a bygone era and to rethink the ways in which museums serve their communities. So um, for the last two years, 
I have been responsible for the visitor experience at three of the 36 historic houses owned and operated by Historic New England, which is the oldest, largest, and most comprehensive regional heritage organization in the country. I have that memorized, that part. Um, has anyone ever been to the Hamilton House or Jewett House before? Oh, good, good to know. They look very glamorous, I assure you, but uh, when I'm not thinking about visitors, I'm usually vacuuming up mouse poop or um, chasing snapping turtles out of bathrooms with a broom. The organization was founded 100 years ago by an early preservationist named William Sumner Appleton, who collected the homes of his wealthy white pals for the enjoyment of his other wealthy white pals, and um, also with the intention of preserving the built domestic environment of New England in the form of museums. And this is a very noble pursuit, yes. But the fact is that without imagination, historic house museums um, don't always make great museums. And in the traditional scenario, visitors are forced into a content-crammed, hour-long tour and instructed to admire the expensive wallpaper, all while being barked at by a guide who, uh, you know, when they set a, a toe out of line. They don't know where to stand, or if they'll ever be able to get a word in edgewise, or whether or not that's even a working bathroom they're using. Uh, and we expect them to connect with the stories we're telling and to want to return again in the future. And that doesn't even begin to touch the fact that the history of these grand homes chosen for preservation by men like Appleton is not representative of most visitors' worldview. So Appleton's model, the model at the inception of the Historic House Museum, is no longer viable. So how do we enable meaningful, memorable, transformative encounters within an outdated museum framework? And why is it important that we do? So it's my belief that historic houses are successful when visitors are empowered to connect on their own terms and with agency. And when historic houses are successful, they can bring communities together better than any other kind of museums. That's the argument that I am making. So I want to focus on the work I've done toward this end at one of my sites in particular. Sarah, Sarah Orne-Jewett lived and wrote in her family's home at the heart of South Berwick and rose to international standing by the 1890s with her seminal work, The Country of the Pointed Firs. Today, she is virtually unknown um, outside of the realm of regionalist literary criticism. Her beloved home has been a museum since 1932, and it sits smack dab in the middle of downtown South Berwick. But when I arrived in my new position, one of the first conversations that I had was with a business owner directly across the street who said, oh yeah, you guys have like, I don't know, like little tours or something over there. And I couldn't blame him because in his lifetime, we had given this South Berwick resident absolutely no reason to think that there was anything going on at Jewett House that was for him. And that needed to change. In May of 2014, we were able to officially add a building to our campus that not only gave us more room, but enabled us to reconfigure the museum experience to be truly visitor-centered. And the visitor center stands just across the yard from the museum in a house that Jewett's father built in 1855. It has chairs that you can sit on. It has a shop, gallery space, and a room for public and educational programming. And our inaugural exhibition in the visitor center needed to say, Hello, South Berwick, we are here, our lights are on, please come in. So we settled on the Dury's Contemporary Art Show, inspired by a passage from Jewett, that uh, we who live in these beloved old towns here by the sea are custodians of something valuable and interesting to the rest of this great growing country. 
We received over 100 submissions for this show, and the resulting beautiful exhibit earned us a place in the thriving creative economy of our community. And one visitor wrote, Sarah would be so pleased. Um, so having piqued the curiosity of our potential constituents, the time came to reel them in with some new programs. For me, literary historic sites like this one are the most exciting because they are already sites of inspiration. It's about capturing that moment when Sarah Orne Jewett put pen to paper at her desk in the upstairs landing and harnessing that power of place to infuse new work. So a musical celebration of the author's birthday mixed performances by our community chorus and readings and included a crowdsourced poetry project. Authors, including award-winning local Nicholson Baker, I love him very much, came to share their work and speak about their process. A group of local writers now meets at the museum every month. In fact, we have one of them here tonight. I don't know where she is, but she's here. And their words resound in rooms where Sarah once worked and reworked her own words. And one member said, I leave our meetings feeling hopeful for the act of writing and the time I spend on it. A workshop next Saturday, actually, will uh, invite writers to evoke place more powerfully as Jewett herself was master of. And there are still a couple of spots available for that if anyone is interested. Give me a call. Um, contemporary art will continue to be an invaluable tool in the revitalization of this historic house museum. I call it the kaleidoscope effect, unmaking and remaking, forming new vistas in the same old landscape. At the moment, you can see a contemporary sculpture exhibition at Jewett House, a partnership with the New England Sculpture Association. And in the Visitor Center gallery, you are invite, uh, invited to view our Little Beasties, um, work by upper school students at Berwick Academy displayed in conversation with hand-painted passages of Jewett thoughts on human nature and our natural environment. And partnerships with local organizations and schools like this one will continue to, to fuel our growth. And of course, there's just a lot more to do. Um, I also have two other museums, so that's a big chunk of my time right there. But we've come a long way in just two years, and um, our accessibility and worth in our community appears to be at an all-time high. Um, uh, as a guest wrote, it's nice to have so many reasons to be a repeat visitor. So, twist, <laughs> I'm leaving. <laughs> I'm going to become the program director at the Emily Dickinson Museum um, in Amherst, Massachusetts, but I am thoroughly, oh, thank you. <laughs> That's very nice. Um, but I'm thoroughly bolstered by the work that we have done and continue to do in South Berwick and the response that I have seen in this community. So when it comes to historic houses, I say what's mine is yours and uh, let us always dwell in possibility. And I hope that you'll all come visit me in my new digs. So thank you. Our final and surprise keynote speaker is Larry Clough, who is the editor of The Sound Magazine, which is a weekly publication um, dedicated to news, arts, and culture on the seacoast. He's been a, um, in the local journalism scene here for the past 10 years, and he also organizes the Dover Zombie Walk, which happens in October. This is also its 10th year. So, Larry. All right, uh, thanks for coming out tonight, everyone. This has been uh, really great and really inspiring. 
So I'm Larry. I'm here to talk about uh, local media and how local media is actually still alive. So I'd like to introduce you to The Sound. This is the paper that I edit. Uh, we're a weekly news, arts, and culture publication. Uh, we cover the entire Seacoast region, uh, as far up as Wells, Maine, all the way down to Newburyport, Mass. We print 10,000 copies uh, every week, distributed to 400 locations, and we are on our 27th week and counting. So we're just shy of six months old. So this is our first issue. We started publishing back in December of 2014, which you all remember is a time when the fortunes for local print media suddenly reversed. Everyone started making money hand over fist. Uh, we were printing paper on solid gold. Uh, it was really great, right? That actually didn't happen. That's why no one remembers it. Um, actually, 2014, not the greatest year for uh, local independent media and weeklies specifically. Uh, top 20 weekly papers in the country saw a 6% decrease in circulation that year. Overall, not so great. So why are we launching an independent weekly publication in 2014? First off, we're crazy. There's, there's no other way around it. Um, I can't, uh, in good conscience, get up here and pretend that the media landscape in uh, 2015 is excellent, because it's not. Print ad revenue is down, digital ad revenue is up, the, the gap isn't closing. Newspapers are closing, or they're merging, or they're losing most of their staff, or they're doing some combination uh, thereof. Uh, we've seen it happen locally. Down in Providence, the Providence Phoenix closed in 2014, Boston Phoenix closed in 2013, the Portland Phoenix up in Maine, they've had their own problems. They were purchased by the Portland Sun last year. Uh, and even locally, our beloved local daily newspaper, Foster's Daily Democrat, of which I am a proud alumnus, uh, was purchased in 2014 by Gatehouse Media, the company that owns the Portsmouth Herald. So the media landscape, uh, it's not that great. However, I and uh, Matt Cantor, the publisher of The Sound and the people that we work with, we believe that local media still matters. And it's not only us that believe that uh, we're not the only crazy ones. There are tons of other people who believe this too. When digital journalist Melody Kramer recently asked some of her followers online about why local TV and radio stations matter, uh, these were some of the answers that they gave back to her. What I particularly love is this idea that local media helps you be a perpetual tourist in your own town with a side helping of too much empathy. And that uh, kind of speaks to the power of local media and some of the things that it does best that you're not going to get on social media and you're not going to get at bigger media outlets. So there are five things that I've found in the last 10 years that, that local media does best. Uh, the first is that local media chronicles a community over time. And what this means is that rather than just providing information about some event that's happening, some new business that's opening, you know, some government meeting that's coming up, it provides context. It gives you that background history. And you're only going to get that with writers and people who have been living in a community a long time and paying attention to it for a long time. Uh, so at the, in The Sound recently, we published a feature on the uh, African uh, Burying Ground Memorial Park in Portsmouth. And the person who wrote it, Bessel Montaigne Hall, uh, has been writing for publications in the region for, I think, more than 10 years now. Uh, and so she's covered Portsmouth for a long time. She knew a lot of the people involved. And she was able to bring that wealth of experience to an issue that's you know, very, very important to the community, not just because it's happening now, but because of uh, its historical relevance, too. Local media also explains how institutions work, either in your town, in your region, and holds them accountable. So uh, recently, uh, I wrote a feature about how room and meals tax revenue uh, is portioned out to communities here in the Seacoast. That's a huge deal for this region. We have 
towns with very small year-round populations, but very large summertime populations. And it turns out that that's how the state distributes money. They distribute money from room and meals tax to towns based on their populations. So if you're uh, Portsmouth, let's say, with a population of 20,000 people year-round, but you get 100,000 people who come into town visiting every summer, um, you're making a ton of money for the state, and you're not getting a lot of it back to help pave roads, help pay for sewer improvements, that sort of thing. So by reporting the story, you know, now this is something that the Portsmouth City Council is talking about, so it's kind of influencing policy on that level. I also got an email about this story from a woman who rents out a room, um, and she read something in the story about how she thought she, she, she said, I'm supposed to get money back for my administrative costs? What's that about? I don't know anything about that. Where did you get that information? So I told her where I got that information. I gave her the number of the person to contact. A couple hours later, she wrote me back. She's like, I've been losing money this whole time. They're giving me the right form. Now I'm going to get like, some money back for doing this. So local media helps in that small way, too. It kind of connects people to resources that, that they can use. We also provide venues uh, for voices that you might not otherwise hear. So kind of two examples that we've published recently. In Rochester, artist Beth Wittenberg had a pop-up art show that was put up downtown. And it caused some, some controversy in the community. There were some complaints about the content of the artwork. Some people thought it was too dark, too violent, that sort of thing. And it got taken down. So we interviewed Beth. We talked to her about her art. We talked to her about her reaction, about you know, what happened with her, with her pop-up show getting abruptly taken down, uh, which is something that you're not going to find in maybe the, the, the local daily. Uh, they're probably not going to uh, write a story on that. I also recently sat in on a political candidate bird dog training session with the American Friends Service Committee. Presidential politics and the campaign, they're huge topics in New Hampshire and in the region. But with the American Friends Service Committee, their focus is on social justice issues, prison reform, immigration reform, that sort of thing. Not the kind of sexy stuff that gets a lot of play in the daily papers, which is you know, kind of more focused on the horse race. And I think one of the most important things we do is we create connections and we spur action. So one of the first features that we published in The Sound back in December when we started was on local zines. We profiled kind of two local zine creators. Uh, one is Sam Pe uh, Paolini, who I believe has spoken here before, and the other is Georgine Nunn. They published zines. They're both in the same region. They never met each other. Then they read about each other in the story, and then suddenly they found a reason to start collaborating. Uh, that same story encouraged one of the editors at Wrong Brain, Cody LaPlante, uh, to contact me and ask if he could start writing for The Sound which I was happy to, happy to have him aboard. Unfortunately, a couple months ago, Cody died of a heroin overdose. It was incredibly sad. Um, and so we let our readers know that, that this happened. Uh, we you know, had a short notice in the paper. We, we printed one of Cody's poems. And this announcement so moved someone else in the community that she immediately went out and she started organizing a community forum on heroin and opiate addiction, something that's continuing to trouble our region. So this one story, uh, one simple you know, 900 word feature back in December, had this huge ripple effect. Uh, and that's the sort of thing that only happens with local media. There's one last thing that local media does. And I think it, it might be kind of its, its ace in the hole compared to social media and other bigger media outlets. And it's surprising you with, <laughs> with adorable cats. Um, so lo local media is great at surprising you. Social media is terrible at it. All of social media is predicated on predicting what you are going to like. It takes everything you've done in the past, and it makes a prediction of what you're going to like in the future, and it just gives you that stuff. 
you like this band, you're going to love this band. You like this food, you're going to love this food. You want to go to this place, you should probably go to this place too. That's, that's great if you always want to keep getting stuff that's like the other stuff that you've had before. But the thing is, we don't want that. We want to be surprised. We want to stumble onto something new. We want to discover new things. And that's where local media comes in. By having people in the community who are constantly uh, listening to what's going on and reporting back on it, who have that history, who know the context, who know about these connections, local media can surprise you. You might not know that you love roller derby. Social media is not going to tell you that you might love roller derby. But when you read about the local derby team in the paper, and then you go check, about, check out about, and then two weeks later you're strapping on skates and you're like throwing elbows at someone, that's great. And that's the kind of surprise that you didn't know about that you could have never predicted. And that's, that's something that local media can do. So there's one other thing about local media that's really important, and I think it gets lost a lot in discussions about it. People talk about how great it is to have local media, how important it is, the, the role it fills in a community, and that's all true. But the other secret is that local media doesn't exist in a vacuum. You, the audience, you, the people who are out there creating things, you, the people who are out there doing things, serving on uh, community boards, all of that stuff, you help keep local media alive. And I mean that in a couple ways. First, there's the obvious way of advertising. The Sound is a free weekly newspaper. Our revenue is driven primarily by advertising. So we need people to advertise with us, and we also need people to go out and patronize those advertisers so that they know they're getting their money's worth in their ads, they keep advertising with us, and we keep paying people to go out and cover our community. But the other way people can contribute, and I encourage them con to contribute, is by engaging in some way uh, with us. So submitting a story idea that you think we should write about. You don't have to write it. Don't worry. I'm not, I'm not putting you on the hook about anything. Or if you do want to write about it, that's great. Pitch a story. And if you don't want to do that stuff, but if you've got something, some major event coming up, Share it with us. Tell us about something that you might not see in the paper that other people might not know about that you want them to know about. And there's my old favorite, write a letter to the editor. I love letters to the editor. It's the first thing I read in any kind of newspaper I pick up. It's a great way to connect with your community, um, and I would love it if more people did that. So you know, remember, local media doesn't happen in a vacuum. It doesn't happen by magic. It needs a community to cover, and it needs an engaged audience to take part in it. Thanks. All right, how's everyone doing? A little, feeling a little inspired? All right, well, I just wanted to get up and thank everyone. Can we give a big round of applause for everyone that presented here tonight, all the 11 speakers? Very exciting news. I hope you all go home with some more opportunities, some more friendships, some more ideas of what to do or how to take your own successes and uh, turn it into something great and, and regard it as the success that it is. Um, so with that, again, I'd like to thank everyone that came out, thank all of you, uh, thank all the volunteers, the supporters, the Makers and Shakers organization, and of course, all of our sponsors. Please give them a hug, and I hope you uh, all come out next year. So thanks, everyone. Have a good night. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to the Makers and Shakers podcast. We're working on a Beyond the Summit series so we can continue to bring you the podcast until the summit comes in June of next year. Until then, follow us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. I'm Patrick Gale. Thanks for listening. Have a great week.